Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. In this episode, I sit down with Rob Shaw, founder and president of the Mountain Tactical Institute. Rob and his team have created a variety of programs to assist tactical athletes by designing mission-directed fitness programs. The crew at MIT bases all of their programs on mission-direct research. There is tons of free content on his site, including research articles, studies, and leadership. Rob and I discuss common pitfalls in today's law enforcement fitness programs and some strategies you can employ today to fix them and improve your mission readiness. Rob, thank you for being with us today. For those of you who don't know you and uh, what Mountain Tactical uh, Athlete does, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and then how you ended up being one of the co-founders and starting this and, and kind of a little bit about what it's about? Yeah, uh, kind of an interesting trip for me to this this world. Military background, I went to Coast Guard Academy and uh, was officer in the Coast Guard for five years. Never really, uh, I don't, I'm not classically educated in on fitness or strength and conditioning. I'm a self-taught strength coach. And after I got a Coast Guard, I started another business and uh, did that for a while, but I was always training the whole time. And then when I sold that business, I, I kind of always wanted to know before I, I sold that business, I was kind of getting into a little bit of coaching. I just one of those guys, you kind of go to the gym and train and other people want to start training with you because you're training hard and doing different stuff. I decided to, uh, I'm from Wyoming, fifth generation from Wyoming. And I um, really was interested in uh, when I kind of, I had this opportunity uh, training with uh, mountain athletes. And, um, and so I grew up in a town called Pinedale and I was living there at the time. It's really close to Jackson, Wyoming. And Jackson is a, uh, in the lower 48, Jackson is an incredible training ground for high level alpinists in the U.S. Uh, the reason is because the Tetons kind of rise right up from the valley floor. And there's really no approach. So just an incredible training ground for uh, alpinists and, uh, and especially uh, backcountry skiing and uh, high level uh, free skiing. And so I went up there and started a gym and started working with mountain guides. And this was uh, in 2007, I think, or 2000, early 2008s when I actually opened. And uh, that's was sort of the surge, Obama's surge in Afghanistan. And shortly after I opened, we were kind of putting our, our stuff up online. And uh, I started getting that request from guys who were deployed in Iraq and then uh, Afghanistan. And especially on the Afghanistan side, because they were uh, heading over for deployments and just getting their asses kicked with the mountainous terrain. And they wanted a way to train for the mountains. And so uh, I developed an Afghanistan pre-deployment training plan. And this gave that to you know, literally thousands of dudes, multiple battalion commanders, NATO guys all over the world. And um, one thing led to the other. And, and pretty soon I was getting requests to start uh, programming for military day-to-day uh, -day stuff and then ranger school and green race selection and belts and everything else. And, uh, and then the um, law enforcement guys kind of found me somehow and they were kind of following the military stuff and they said we want you to start programming for us and so we started doing that and uh, built day-to-day -day programming for law enforcement it started out with the patrol detectives and then uh, SWAT SRT guys uh, needed something different what is interesting about the work that we do on the programming side is uh, that's what we do is we do programming a lot of the programming on the, in the tactical world is kind of retread programming from other stuff you know a lot of uh, team sport programming, you know, to try to apply programming for football or soccer to, to uh, tactical stuff or, you know, bodybuilding stuff to tactical stuff. And all of our stuff has been built kind of from the ground up mission direct for the, the different athletes that we work with. 
we still do a lot of work with the mountain athletes. And so that's what we call it the Mountain Tactical Institute. Um, after that, we start working with law enforcement guys, uh, pretty soon fire rescue guys uh, were, were uh, asking us for programming. And so now we kind of cover on the tactical side, military, law enforcement, fire rescue. And, uh, and then on the mountain side, all the different mountain disciplines. And so uh, that's, that's kind of our focus, uh, just mission-directed programming, not only for day-to-day -day work, but also for special events, selections, um, deployments, um, schools. Um, and so we generally have two types of programming. One is, uh, we call it base fitness, which is day-to-day -day programming. And uh, every uh, discipline within you know, our day-to-day -day programming for SWAT, SRT teams on the law enforcement side differs from our day-to-day -day programming for patrol and detectives. Um, and so it's kind of tailored to your job. And then on the other, uh, that's the first type of programming we do. And then on the second side is, uh, we call it mission direct or event specific programming. And uh, so we develop programming for, you know, SWAT selections um, for the NTOA, you know, SWAT selection test, now our SWAT fitness test. Um, so uh, that's, that's kind of what we do. I mean, we, uh, one of the interesting things about our uh, programming approach is that we, uh, we have a research uh, element to it. And, um, and so we, we have local lab rats in our own facilities, and then we started working through remote lab rats. And so we're always testing our programming. And this isn't uh, a high level academic uh, research. We tried doing that and it was just so cumbersome and slow and specific, we couldn't really get anywhere with it. Our, uh, our research is what I call um, you know, mission direct research. We're not interested in the perfect um, answer. We're just interested in seeing if we can find something that works better this idea of continuous improvement. So we'll test something on the fitness side or we started testing stuff on the nutrition side and we've done, we've done other types of uh, research also. And we just wanna identify something that works a little bit better, implement it and then start retesting again. So this continual iteration. We've talked about you know fitness in law enforcement in the profession. You've got a pretty good article in there about fitness for duty. And uh, it's always a topic uh, in the tactical communities but it's a, it's a really much bigger topic than that in the, the culture of that and, and what we've accepted uh, and really how your fitness can, you know, maybe not very often in this profession, but absolutely save your life or cost you your life. And uh, I know you've got some uh, experience with that dealing with uh, different agencies from around the, the country. And I thought I, I want to kind of pick your brain about your thoughts of where we're at contemporary right now, 2021 in the profession, uh, what's good and what's wrong with it. And then uh, what do you think we should do about it? What's so interesting about um, law enforcement versus the military side is law enforcement has, the, the mil, fitness on the military side is so much easier than it is on the law enforcement side. First of all, there's a couple of things that really make a difference. The first one is high jeopardy fitness assessments, which are required. High jeopardy equals you don't pass, you get fired. And, um, and very few law enforcement agencies have high jeopardy uh, fitness assessments. Some SWAT units will have them where you have where to maintain, stay on the team, you have to pass that. But NC-wide, where you can get fired if you don't pass your fitness assessment, those are almost impossible to get get through now because of primarily union resistance, but also just, just lawsuits. It's almost impossible to get done. The other element is time on duty to train. And um, very few 
especially uh, patrol detective guys get time paid tied on time on duty to train. It's different in the uh, SWAT SRT world where guys seem to have a, a little more time, especially the full-time teams, um, you know, where they're kind of expected to train every day and they get time to queue it. But um, in the military, I mean, you know, the first two hours every day is PT and it's just not the case um, for um, law enforcement side. So there's some obstacles on the law enforcement side and that, that are presented at the regular fitness training that don't exist on the military side. What is so, I guess, wrong about that is that, and you know this better than I do, the military guys can predict when they're in danger, right? Either they, they have an upcoming deployment or when they're gonna need their fitness, they have an upcoming school and upcoming selection. Law enforcement isn't like that. Um, and and I think that uh, law enforcement guys are kind of deployed all the time. Um, and even though it may not be high speed all the time, as you know better than me, any situation can become life-threatening and you may need your fitness at any time. And so there's this, you know, this burden of constant fitness that you have to maintain. And I think uh, being professional about that over a long career, I, I, the, the other element that is really interesting is I think you said, Marcus, that you're 49. I mean, if you're a 49 year old guy in the military, you're behind a desk, dude. You're not in the front line anymore. You haven't been in front of line for probably 15 years. If you're an officer, you're not even close to it, right? Maybe if you're on, well, yeah, just period. But I mean, law enforcement guys well into their 50s can be on the tip of the spear. And so um, there's just, uh, so you have to maintain that, that level of fitness, you know, way professionally way, way into, into your later years of your career. So there's just some really interesting challenges for the law enforcement side, but I don't care. If you are professional about your job, and I, I believe that tactical athletes are professional athletes and you're professional about your fitness. And it's on you to be professional about your fitness, just like it's on you to be professional about your, your marksmanship and everything. You cannot, as a professional, lay that responsibility for you being up to speed on your agency or on your training, on your commander, on the guys around you. That's just not owning your work um, and your, in your craft. And, um, and I think that's one of the things I kind of see on the first responder side. I can't tell you how many emails I received from, from guys who said, hey, you know, I really want to do this PT test or something. I just don't have any command support. And I'm, I'm just so sick of that, that, you know, kind of, blaming the agency or the, or who you work for the guys around you for not being professional by your fitness because there's nothing there's no there's no requirement that you need to have a you know a, a full-time strength conditioning coach and a, a mandated pt test and all that stuff to, to make you make you professional about your fitness or to increase the uh, fitness culture at your unit you can do a lot of work a lot of good work without any of that stuff um, I, and i i think that Honestly, in today's world with the lawsuit stuff, you, you have to do that. Um, so, and, and I've seen other units do it and some units have a strong fitness culture and some don't. One of the, the things that I've kind of seen over on the law enforcement side, and this is consistent. One is that I don't understand how come first responders, especially law enforcement tolerate unfit members. If you are, you know, partnered or going to a, a tactical situation and one of the guys or people that you're working with is severely deconditioned, that person can get you killed. 
That's just that's just all there is to it. And there's just a silent approval of that, um, and that I just don't I don't quite understand. You know that that that's one that's one certain element of it. The other thing is that what I've seen from the first responder side when it comes to fitness stuff that's coming agency top driven down, it's always wrapped up in what I call you know the wellness movement. So it's not only your fitness, it's your diet, you know, it's your psychology, it's dealing with stress, it's dealing with family issues. And those are separate. Fitness is like marksmanship, right? Once you start tying in wellness stuff with fitness, then you're giving guys an excuse not to be fit. You can have a shitty home life, you can have a shitty diet, and you can still get your butt up and train hard every day, right? There's no, you know, there's no, you know, it's just like being proficient with your weapon. Um, fitness is a weapon. And so that's what I kind of see is there's this approach to fitness that's tied into wellness that becomes really soft. There's lots of obstacles to law enforcement fitness consistent. And you're not going to get any support in terms of money, the high jeopardy PFT, which makes other guys be fit around you, training time on duty equipment. <laughs> you're not going to get that. But you have a professional responsibility to be fit for your job because you can get yourself killed. You can get guys around you killed. Your family require, you know, is depending on you. And, and so it kind of all comes back to the member. But, I mean, this is just part of being professional. I mean, um, I mean you're in the private world. <laughs> you don't have all this government. You know, you just got to. And I think there's a lot of work that can be done really good work in terms of developing a fitness culture at a, at a, at a, at your unit, um, wherever you are without any of that stuff. Um, you know, I think the first one is just to kind of set the personal example. The first one is to become professional about your fitness and becoming professional about your fitness means it's something you commit to do every day. Um, it, it, it ties in your diet, but it's just becoming professional about your fitness. We have seen this at first responder units so many times is that, you know, the guys who are professional about their fitness are generally professional about all the different elements of their work, of their craft. You know, they're professional about their tactics, they're professional about their marksmanship, you know, the paperwork's in line, all that stuff kind of works together. And I'm sure you've seen this firsthand yourself in your years there where you've seen a guy, you started getting fit and everything else about his job got better, right? You've also seen this is that, the guys who are uh, professional about their fitness end up kind of getting to the same unit. On the law enforcement side, they start, they move to the, the tactical teams, right? And those are generally your best guys, right? Because they, they kind of, they want to be around other guys who are like that. Um, but that can also mean that your, your guys who are not professional about their fitness generally aren't proficient about the rest of your job. And they kind of get shuffled off to, you know, the, the low speed, um, or that you know the the units or the stations that don't have a lot going on. You end up with one one high speed station with great great guys. You know the tactical unit, and then and then at the other end, uh, uh, you know a slow station somewhere with a bunch of shitheads on it, right? Um, and this may not be the case for your for your app, but a lot of rural departments who don't have a strong uh, fitness uh, culture will end up training guys and then they get the young high-speed guys. They don't like the fitness culture and they'll go to a high-speed unit. So the, the rural departments or the smaller departments will end up be as training grounds for 
you know, the, uh, the, uh, the bigger units that have strong fit, you know, strong cultures and fitness cultures. I mean, fitness can, a strong fitness culture can make so many great changes. I guess in terms of that though, there's, there's so many things that can be done at the individual level. First is if you're professional about your fitness, that that's the first thing. And there's two parts about that. One is that you can do on your own and that's just an attitude change and a commitment. And the second is, and, and the commitment is important. That means that you're probably, you might have to buy your own gym membership or buy your own equipment. It means that you might have to take time out of your personal time because you're not going to get time on duty to train, to train, right? So it's going to cost you, but that's part of being, you know, you're, that's a part of the profession you, you decided to take. But at the unit level, the, I guess the other, the other part about that is, is to figure out the programming that works for your job. You need help with that. Um, that's what we do. Um, training or programming for mission direct stuff is not simple. <laughs> I mean, we teach a, a tactical advanced programming course. It's a three-day course. And so that's where you can get help from, you know, guys like me or other guys out there doing tactical training, but just to know that you're, you're doing fitness right. Uh, and so there's a difference, uh, but uh, that, that's important. Now, at the unit level, I think it's important to understand that there are things you can do. First, you can let other guys know your training. You can invite them to train with you. And then there's little things you can start doing at the department. The first is to start fighting to get a place at the station to train. A closet, an empty room, something like that. And then you can start filling it with equipment. You know, you can bring in your own equipment. I've seen so many guys do this. They'll bring in their own equipment. I mean, you can design a world, we do it, world-class strength conditioning program, you know, with a set of sandbags that you make it at Army Double Bag. I mean, it's no big deal. You know, there's, I mean, the, the equipment requirements are not that extensive. That's one of the things that, that kind of gets in the way. You know, guys think they need, you know, fully equipped, fancy, you know, college strength and weight. You don't. You don't need any of that crap. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of our work is around sandbags and, you know, shuttle repeat sprints, you know. <laughs> um, in terms of fitness culture of the unit, man, if you can get a place to train, a little bit of equipment in there, and then you can, at the unit, and then you can start putting up training sessions. And just start training at the unit before your shift. It's generally, I recommend guys always train before the shift. Um, and, and guys will start seeing you. And believe me, you'll start attracting people who are interested and 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 one thing will lead to another i mean the the command will take notice all of a sudden it started uh, you know one or two guys now you've got eight or nine guys training this little space and it's too crowded and you need a bigger space and you'll be able to fight for that and so you can start developing all this stuff there's no there's nothing that says you cannot develop your own unit fitness assessment we, we help guys develop fitness assessments all the time. It doesn't have to be a high jeopardy assessment, right? I mean, in other words, it's not agency mandated, you know, so you can't get fired from it, but a unit can do it itself, right? One of the things I always thought would be interesting to test is if you develop a fitness assessment that everybody had to take, and that happens a lot. You can take a fitness assessment or the agency can do that, uh, but then it may not be used for you know, someone to get fired or something. But if you could just develop a fitness assessment, you know, one, once or twice a year and then publish the results so that everybody knew what everybody else was doing on it, right? There would be some, there would be some peer pressure that would come in line just from that, even if it was published internally. Yeah, for sure. One, one of the things that I always, I always wanted to see, 
and I have no idea if this is possible, but let's just say that you're on a, a tactical team and, uh, and you got one guy who's on there who's maybe a legacy member, old guy like you, who thinks he doesn't need fitness anymore. And, and so he kind of quit trying a long time ago. And, and uh, you, you have to do this. Everybody does this, you know, unit fitness assessment. Many SWAT teams have their own kind of assessment or something, whatever it is. And, and the guy's severely deconditioned. And you go out on a call or you get called out one time or you come back and the, and the other guys on the team say, hey, um, this is an unacceptable safety risk. I'm not going to work with this guy. Just like that, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and then that kind of pressure would happen. If you'd have everybody else on the team say, hey, we're not going to work with this guy. Um, and, you know, we're going to call the union. <laughs> we're not going to work because it's unacceptable safety risk. You know, it's, it's kind of a weird, yeah. a weird what happens? deal, but. I mean, yeah, that's uh, fair you know, though, right? Yeah. I mean, you want to, I mean, if this is you as a commander, right? If you, because you, you're commanding your SWAT team, if you sent one of your guys, if you sent your guys out and one of them had, you know, their assault rifle had a chance of malfunctioning and he knowingly did that, dude, man. Yeah, right? that's and, on me. The, I mean, not only is, will I not ever sleep at night, but there'll be, you know, professional consequences for that. And, and commanders like you are sending unfit guys in the field all the time, which is the exact same issue. Anyway, I guess, I guess I'm just saying that the, we know this about first responders. They have, they're deployed all the time. I think it's easy to get lackadaisical um, because maybe it's not high speed every day, but the risk is there. You're not gonna get any command support, official command support even if the command wants to support you, the attorneys aren't going to let them do it. Um, but if you are professional about your fitness, there are ways that you can really do some good work and really create a good fitness culture at your unit. We've done quite a bit of work on fitness cultures at, at first responders units. And, and there's just some nasty stuff that goes on. We, we went and we actually did a study at a uh, fire department in Des Moines, Iowa. And the fire department, they had, they actually had a requirement where, firemen at their station had to do fitness training for an hour every day on duty and uh, they had to re record that they had done this training and there was rampant fraud with that and it was known you know and, and it was it, just accepted yeah see that that kind of acceptance right mm -hmm. so it's uh you know we, we kind of pointed out this obvious thing and those guys you know there were some guys in the professional fitness who brought us in i actually sent a couple phds out there to <laughs> kind of study this fitness culture you know, the command wasn't really, you know, supportive of it. I mean, but there were certain stations with certain captains who had certain shifts and their dudes were fit and more professional than the other guys, right? And then you'd have, the, and so you'd, and then the, those stations generally were the busiest stations and they attracted the best guys. And right? they stuck so, together. That's right, right. Because they wanted yeah. to train, you know, they wanted, they wanted to be to, on those types of dudes, Yeah, right? they want to be able to rely on each other. That's a that's a great point. What have you seen in, in law enforcement that way? Because I know you've worked with a bunch of you you've done some of these assessments and helped develop programs. What are some key mistakes that people make when they're trying to do their own program? I, I followed there was a case in Colorado Springs where the police department did all checked all the boxes to implement a high jeopardy fitness assessment. They brought in a professional group to do a job task demand. You know, they developed a fitness assessment based on 
pretty much a Cooper test stuff, which is all this data. And, uh, you know, they, they, they told all their department members it was coming. They did practice tests. They offered coaching. And then when they finally implemented it, they had a bunch of failures. They got sued and they, you know, was kicked out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Everything, yep. because there was, I mean, some of the, there were like a group of older female detectives who didn't take it serious. And he said the results were biased based on gender. And that was all it took. So, so that's, that's one mistake. All of that effort, all of that time. And now you can imagine what's happened at the department, like hands up, we can't do anything. And so fitness is, I, I don't know, I haven't checked back with them, but you could see what could happen after that fitness would never be. So that's one mistake. That's the first mistake is to try to do it through kind of the official, when I say official, kind of through a program, you know, like some type of official program. I think the, the best thing you can do is start at the at year level and at the unit level and kind of build it up from the bottom. I guess that's a, that's a biggest mistake, trying to go top down instead of going bottom up. Bottom up. Yeah, that's bottom a great point. Is how to do it. And, that, and again, that starts with one individual taking their fitness seriously. The second step is space on the station to train. The second uh, thing is try to get equipment there to train. Third is to start putting up is work out, work, reach out to somebody like me to get their programming to train. Uh, and then just start training. You'll, you will attract other people in their training. And then things can build at, at you know, um, ideally you'd be able to, you know, maybe get a better, a bigger space to train. So more equipment that the agency kicks in for. And then, um, you know, at the ideal level, you get your own strength conditioning coach, right? That's kind of where the, the special forces units in the military are doing now. There's some problems to that, but that's kind of where they, yeah, they got their facility, they got their own coaches, you know what I mean? Um, that, yeah. That's kind of at the upper level. I don't think there's even a, there, there may or not be a, a law enforcement SWAT team, a tactical team that kind of has something similar, you know, for a small team. But I, I kind of doubt it right now, but at the, that's kind of the ultimate level. And then, and then you got, you get time on duty to train, right? So, um, you know, if you, if you have a 12 hour shift, you know, the first hour can be for training and then that's kind of voluntary. And the next thing is, it's not voluntary. In my ideal world, your team is training together every day. You know, the team trains together and is coached and they have good professional programming. That's that's the ideal world, but there's so much work you can get to, to get in there. And, and the coach is paid by the agency, right? So um, that's, that's the ideal ultimate, but there's so much work you can do before you get there. Well, I, I, I would agree with you. And especially if you look at big cultural changes, they don't ever start at the top successful cultural change is supported maybe by the top, but that's not where it starts. The, the average person in any organization, their buy-in doesn't come from whatever the headshed is. It's going to come from their peers, right? We do, we do things as we don't want to disappoint our fellow teammates. I don't want to let my teammates down. And that's what motivates me. And I, I obviously don't want to embarrass my department and fail, but what really motivates me is I, I don't want to let my partner down. The idea of the fitness culture is, I don't think it can be top driven because for, you know, for example, maybe you have an enlightened leader, you know, and, and uh, I don't know how long you'll be in, be in your job. It's different in the military. You're only there for a couple of years, right? But maybe, mm -hmm. maybe you can be the, in, in your position for 10 years, which would be great. But once you're gone, you're gone, right? So that's, and that's not a, a fitness culture. That's an enlightened leader on the fitness. You know what I mean? Sure. But if you have a, a unit, 
where it has a high expectation of a fitness culture. And that's carried on over the years between individuals who come to the unit. That's what the ideal culture is, right? The unit has a name. So example, you know, your, your team just has a, no matter who's there, there's just this expectation that's built over the years on, on the, on the fitness side. And, and it, and it kind of, and it, it's, it endures regardless of the people who are in there. That's the ideal situation. Yeah, I'd say that's the successful culture, right? When it carries on when you're not there and and from generation to generation. You t- I, I want to touch on this briefly just because I, I, I really liked your quiet professional article. It kind of ties into everything you've already talked about, but and, and that's being you know, a dedicated professional to your craft. And uh, in all honesty, there, for a, a short article, there's so much meat on each topic and we could spend hours talking about those but I think one of the biggest takeaways I got was uh, you know a quiet professional what does that mean what does that look like and and it comes with a humility and it comes with that dedication to your craft in the in the, the process versus the results and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to talk a little bit about that because for me the older I get uh, I finally learned to enjoy that that, that journey. And I, I spent a lot of time reading so I can teach myself how to think, uh, versus what to learn. And so that's kind of been my focus lately. And I, you really spoke to me in the, in the way that you wrote that. So if you could just touch on, uh, I know that's a big article, but the, the quiet professional and and kind of the craft and the journey part. It is, it is something I, I get to meet anybody who kind of is there young i think it, it takes time to kind of just kind of move in that direction and that not only does it take time it, it kind of it takes some constant vigilance right um so it, it is kind of this journey but i, I think talking about the, the craft and the work is is a way to think about it and and to think about being not a law enforcement professional but a craftsman whatever your job is, right? So on, on my side, I'm a, I'm a craftsman on, on, on fitness programming, that's my craft. Um, and uh, the, first, the, the first thing individually you kind of have to do or, or, or the kind of the journey is to, is to put mission first and, and service first. And um, when you're able to do this finally, where you, are able to get to the point where it's not about you it's liberating it takes time to get there um, to get to that that point where it's not about you where it's about the mission and and you have a service you know service to your you know your comrades or your colleagues or service to the idea of the agency or service to the public whatever it is <clears throat> it takes time to do that but when you get there it's really liberating because out goes ego, out goes want for recognition, out goes um, um, career advancement, all that stuff goes out and it just becomes about service. In terms of the hard work and, and the idea of craftsmanship, I describe it kind of like, you know, hard work with a full heart. And um, my own journey is kind of, you know, and, and I think uh, I'm a, everybody's different, but for me, it, it kind of comes with this idea of, expectation so you, you get to a, a unit or you, you grow up in a 
family where you're just expected to work hard and you're expected to do it. You kind of do what's gritted teeth, right? Because you see the guys around you aren't working hard and they're getting the same pay you are, you know, but they're they're not working hard, they're not taking it serious, they're not doing a good job, or they're cutting corners or they're bitching all anyway. Um, but you you do your job, you just do it with gritted teeth and you resent these other guys. And then the, and then kind of the next step is this idea of pride. After a while, you become known as good at your job or you become known as a hard worker. And then it's no longer that you're expected by other people to do it. You kind of do it because you like being known as a hard worker or you like being known as being someone good at your job, right? So there's kind of this pride element to it. Um, it's still not, it's still kind of an internal ego kind of thing. Um, but it's better than expectation. You're not doing with gritted teeth anymore. You know, you know, there's a little bit more because you're proud of what, of the reputation you have and you have a pride to it. And then the final step is, is this idea you kind of move into the idea of craft where all of a sudden you really don't care what other people you know, there's no expect, you're not really concerned about what other people expect you to do. There's no ego into it. You don't work hard because you want to be known as a hard worker. You don't do a good job because you want to keep up your reputation as being, you know, that you generally love the craft and learning about the craft. And the craft itself becomes its own reward and constant learning thing. And you really enjoy that, that process of learning. And so I, obviously I'm not familiar with the details of your work, you know, but, you know, perhaps, you know, this on the basic law enforcement side, it's, you know, the craft of a, you know, a typical, you know, traffic stop, all the safety things you go through, all that stuff going up there, you know, and um, avoiding, you know, just every time it's getting, you're working to, to get it better and better and better every time that idea of constant improvement. And you find out that the goal is, isn't expectation it's or a perfection it's just the goal is kind of that idea of constant improvement and continuous learning and when you get to that point there's really humility because you'll find that you you that the craft keeps on kicking your butt right it keeps on teaching you lessons right you thought you knew everything you've been what well, you said you've been in for 23 years or something right <laughs> and you go yeah i don't i don't know anything <laughs> you're right you know, you're often you're like no. oh my god i just got no. my ass totally kicked by this yeah and it's not like you feel bad about it. You're like, it's exciting to you. It's like, oh man, there's just yeah. great opportunities. To, you know, now all of a sudden, I, I say that quiet professionals, guys, you are, I call them happy grinders. Quiet professionals are grinders. I mean, you, you, you're quite professional are the grinders. It doesn't mean that the leaders in the department, that's not always the case. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's very possible to be a quiet professional in your department and be, you know, one of the lowest ranked guys at the, you know, yeah. you know, or have one of the lowest. There's there's no there's no correlation between your rank and your quiet professionalism. Right. You've known you know you've known plenty mm -hmm. of douchebags who have been promoted to, you know, <laughs> you know, there's no correlation, and you've also known guys who have. Or, or individuals who have purposely not chased that stuff and become very quiet professionals in, in you know, in the space that works for them. Yeah, they pick where um, they want to be. Yeah, for and sure. They get really good at it, right? And and, yeah. and they and they just love it because of that. And so, yeah, there's no, you know, you, there's there's you can't 
there's no uh, correlation between quiet professionalism and rank. And there, I think that often being a quiet professional, if you really aspire to that, can cost you promotions. Um, one of the, one I wrote an essay, it's called Fixing It. And, um, and, it, and fixing it is this idea as, as a professional or, or anything where if you see something's wrong, you, it, you know, if you see something's going on that's wrong, a lot of times, our first indication is there's something wrong with that, but it's not my job right, right. to fix it. And what I've learned or what I try to do is that if you say, I'm going to fix it, even if it's not your job, there's a lot of humility with that. In other words, because fixing it can mean, you know, like one of the things that I'll do is when I, when I go into the grocery store, I'll pick up garbage on the way to the door. A lot of the garbage that's, gross in the, in the parking lot it's gross and i pick it up it's not my job and you know it's often dirty i gotta wash my hands after and it's pretty nasty stuff but there's a, a level of humility that comes with that that makes you humble that that kind of um that that kind of sets sets things straight in, in a way in your mind and mm -hmm. the same is true at your job whatever it is you know whether it's bees you know, you can do that. That's just an example. If you if you take the idea of fixing it, it it has this um, it kind of fights against your ego. It's not like you're you're being humble because of that. You just you're just fixing it. I mean, there's no yeah. There's it's no taking like, yeah, taking ownership a little bit, whether it's yeah. not not rank related, just not even job related. I'm just gonna own my space wherever I am that make right. it better. And, and, Right, and 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 this is part of doing that is it, it just has an incredible, and if you, I think one of the great ways to get on the path of quiet professionalism and then also stay vigilant with it is to fix it within your wherever you are, whatever your your space is. I mean, it's at home, um, you know, or or especially in your in your work life, right? So if you you know, you're a high powered SWAT team commander, you know, you go to some department and see some guys. <laughs> so much power. Stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, yeah. you know, and, and you, you know, or, or, you know, you, you find out that, you know, that one of the stations is needs a patrol guy. You're like, I can fix that. I can, be, you know, you've done patrol, right? You know what I mean? There's no, yeah. there's no ego. It's all surf. I mean, and all that, and that kind of idea is just, uh, I don't, I don't mean to say that where that, that makes you better than anybody else. There's a that's the idea of quiet professionalism. It doesn't matter what other people think. And there's there's this element you kind of are able to get to. And I'm not there all the time, right? <laughs> kinda, yeah, you know, it's a daily I thing. Myself, I, yeah. I kind of see in my I find myself. I mean, it's pretty hard to go through the day without being a douchebag at least once. Just oh, try yeah. to do it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. I mean, I do try, but day, I don't do that well. <laughs> If you make it through the day without being a douchebag at least once, you've done a good job. I mean, so it's a constant fight. But if you can kind of, if you can kind of try to do that, that fixing it, it's uh, it, it, and you do it for the right reasons, which are just internal and humility. There's a liberating element to it. That's the interesting thing about being a quiet professional is it, it gives you a certain amount of lip a liberty that in the strange direction in, in, in a strange way and it, it just if there's a peace that comes with it and solace when you're able to achieve it there's a peace and solace that comes with it that it, it just makes you right with the world and, 
and you can see that, right? Like I, I have friends that practice that uh, daily and have done incredible things in their life, more than I'll ever accomplish. And I, I'm attracted to those guys because they are super humble, but they're, they're comfortable with who they are and where they are. And they know they're going to be okay, no matter what it is. And they, and you've mentioned this before, uh, they seem to separate the noise from what's important. And, and that's because they're, they're focused on that, that professionalism, that ownership. And a lot of the noise just goes away. They, they don't get stuck on it or distracted by it. And, and you can see those people because they generally make good choices and make things better around them, no matter where they are. Yeah. I, uh, again, I'm not always able to do that in my own, my own work, but what, and I think that what you see in them that I see too, is not only people you admire and all, all those other things, but man, they just seem to have a solace about them. Right. There's, there's a, there's a Liberty that comes with that kind of attitude. And isn't that interesting that that Liberty and that solace doesn't come from wanting recognition. It's like the total opposite. Yeah. But, and I but think that's why you have to be old to learn it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't, there's, there's a, there's a journey. One of the things you write about in a quiet professionalism, there's a difference between experience and wisdom. Everybody has experience. Just because you've been on the force for 30 years doesn't mean you're wise. There's no correlation. Wisdom takes work, right? It takes reflection. It takes a commitment to do better. It takes an honest evaluation of where you messed up. It takes forgiveness, not only for other people who may wrong you, but especially for yourself. Uh, wisdom takes work. And uh, so, yeah, there's, there's a difference between experience and, and wisdom. And, and I think that people are able to kind of get to that quite professionally, they're, they're wise. There's a wisdom to it. Yeah, and something, uh, something I, I, again, especially people that know me will laugh, but striving for that, right? And, uh, and every day I try to just fail a little less than I did the day before. I got to ask you this because it's a little less serious. What's the funniest fitness challenge you've seen that first responders uh, or even the military have come up with that you just kind of scratched your head and went, well, how did we get to this? As far as a PT test or some kind of exercise or I know, uh, again, I, uh, I've seen a lot of wacky stuff that gets adapted by law enforcement uh, over the years. A lot of a lot of business trends that we try to adapt and force into a law enforcement model. And I've seen some, some funny fitness ones, but I imagine you've seen some quirky stuff where if you just walked up and watched it, you would be like, how did we get to this? Yeah, I think I, I've seen uh, one of the interesting things, and, and this has been about the, on the, on the military side, probably the, the worst, the worst I've seen is a test for Air Force special tactics. I mean, and so you go like TACP guys and combat controllers and weather guys, and they all have their different fitness assessments. And these are all developed by PhDs. I can't remember which, which one it is, like the Battlefield Airman test. It's like a 10 battery test over three days. 
you know, and includes like a rowing test and, you know, and we've developed more fitness assessments than, than anybody. Um, that's one of the things, it, when I go to see a, a strength conditioning coach at a tactical unit, first thing I ask them is what's your assessment? Because if I know if they haven't developed an assessment, then I know they're not serious about what the work they're doing. A developing assessment identifies what you think is important, right? It, and it doesn't have to be perfect, but as long as you have something, you know, it can change over time. But it, um, and, and if you don't have an assessment, it means you don't know what's important yet. And so you. Right. You know, how can you, how can you say you're successful if you haven't defined what success is? And from a fitness. And how do you measure that? Yeah. Fitness assessment is pretty simple. It has to be a good fitness assessment it has to be um, something that um, assesses the fitness demands, the mission direct fitness demands of the job. And it has to uh, be something that is easy to score and easy to administer. And so, for example, one of the elements of the uh, of this, uh, special tactics <laughs> fitness assessment is a is a hand dynamometer test. We got to squeeze a thing to see how much you know grip strength you have, right? Or like the uh, the new Army Combat Fitness Assess or test ACFT, they have like a backwards medicine ball throw, right? And uh, you know it's supposed to assess tau power because there's been you know some studies about that. But I mean your hand size can make a big difference on that. You know, how slick the ball is, what the, you know, <laughs> just all kinds of weird. Um, uh, so easy to administer, easy to score, easy to administer in equipment and it, and it can't take all damn day, right? You wanna be able to get right. it done in about 90 minutes, right? And it yeah. has to be something that guys can train for. You know, for example, if there's no really way to train for a hand dynamometer test, right? Unless you're gonna, yeah. I mean, we've tried it, it's just crazy. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, I see a lot of that I, on, on the, on the, on the, um, on the law enforcement side, I, some units now are like doing rowing tests. One of the units down in Texas, I can't remember which one it is. I think it's like the Texas state. They actually have like a, uh, they've done a fight gone bad test is one of the things guys can take there. Like they have multiple different tests you can take. Um, so it's really interesting to kind of see that kind of stuff goes through. It's just not practical for what? For what they probably do, you know. And, yeah, the idea is good, but the fitness assessment itself is is faulty. I mean, I know in law enforcement across across our state, at least, uh, we struggle with that for SWAT test. Right, everybody has a different idea. They try to base it on some modalities that are similar to what you might do in your job task. If they're if we're lucky, they do that. Um, but I know it's a constant conversation. Um, I know it was at the, I know it is at the NTOA. They're, they're doing some good work right now uh, on that and trying to raise awareness and formalize that a little bit. So I, I really liked what you had to say about mission direct research and how the research you've done. And, and just so everybody knows, uh, Rob publishes a bunch of that stuff on his website for free. You can read his articles. You can read his studies. Uh, I like that you call them lab rats because that's what that's what they are. And uh, we're often used as lab rats without knowing. So it's cool that we can sign up and actually know what we're getting into and, and actually help our, our community be better. Before you go, besides your website, uh, any, any place else people can follow you and learn more about your work, especially your research and your programs? No, you know, pretty much the website. I'm not uh, super, uh, uh, you know, involved in the social media. So um I'm still trying to figure out the appeal of that, honestly. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so our, our website is yeah. where we, we do it. We have a uh, we have a newsletter to sign up for. We call it Beta, and um, that's where we do 
we kind of published the stuff that we're doing this most recent. That's where you ask for lab rats. Um, there's some really interesting studies I'd like to do on, uh, you know, it, it's made me think a little bit more about, um, you know, doing some work on the, on the law enforcement side um, and, and work with some remote lab rats. One of the studies that we, we wanted to do, and I never got quite ready to do it, was I was interested to see on the patrol side, the, the stress and the effects of off-duty time from stress from gearing up for duty. So in other words, you know, you're going on patrol and you just say you're gonna go on patrol at, you know, you know, at you get you're the midnight, you know, shift at 5 p.m. you gotta report in or whatever. How early in the day do you start getting stressed from that? You know, having to go to do that. And uh, just kind of the impact from that. And there are there are certain, you know, electronic things now that can maybe track that, which would be really interesting to see, uh, just to see, you know, so if you, you know, work four on and get two off, how much of those two off are you really off? You know what I mean? If you got to spend four, you know, four hours coming down from your shift and then four hours to cooling back up, you know what I mean? You lose a half a day, just, there's some interesting things, I think. I, think I, I agree. I think that'd be a great study because I, I don't have to work nights too much anymore, but I totally remember at night. I'd get up and uh, everyone else is kind of winding down their day and I'm just getting ready to go to work midnights or graveyards. And by eight o'clock, seven o'clock, I'm already in work mode and everyone else is wanting to relax and hang out. And it's, you, you're trying to be nice and hang out with them, you know, while you go have maybe dinner before you go to shift or you see friends or your kids are doing something. And the whole time it's not relaxing at all. Cause you know, yeah, you're, they're going to bed and you're going to work. Yeah. And I don't know necessarily need to be tied to that, you know, to the, to the night shift, but just about any, any, any shift. shift. You know I mean? Yeah. That's, that's the interesting thing about that I do find constantly is the, is, is in, is in America, how the military is celebrated so much. And then the, the law enforcement especially is, is not, I, I don't understand that. Rob, again, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to speak with me. I know you're traveling with your family right now. I want to thank you for an awesome website and all the free content that's on it, as well as your dedication to making first responders and the military better prepared for their missions by designing these fitness programs specifically to enhance our mission readiness. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.